This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's been a week. You stop worrying about David? You should be more worried. He was so sad about his wife. I wonder what happened to him. Welcome to Station Eleven, the podcast, a show that dives deep into the HBO Max limited series Station Eleven. Every episode, we'll be joined by a member of the cast or crew of the show and reveal special behind-the-scenes insights into production and the process. I'm Angelica J. Bastian. I'm a writer and pop culture critic for New York Magazine site Vulture. And I'm Patrick Somerville, creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Station Eleven. Each week, Angelica and I are going to sit down with the many collaborators and artists from the TV series and talk about storylines, themes, and characters. We're also going to talk about what it's like to tell a story about a pandemic while living in an actual pandemic. Today, we're joined by Episode 4's director, Helen Shaver. Helen Shaver, the embodiment of love, all built into one human being. I want to create a space where the actor feels safe enough to make a mistake and understand that I've got them. And at that point, they are willing to give me themselves, which becomes the most intoxicating, delicious. It's like falling in love. I'm super excited to discuss Helen's inspiration. First, let's dig into some scenes in episode four, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern aren't dead. It's a really important episode for understanding the traveling symphony and all their very complicated group dynamics. Have you ever been to a post-apocalyptic golf course, Angelica? Only in my dreams, Patrick. Have you ever been to a golf course? Only in my dreams, Patrick. (laughs) Well, this is the one that has a minefield that's been taken over by English professors, but it used to be taken over by military people who seem to wear red bandanas. But first, before they get there, we have to stop off at the fork in the road, an old gas station that we may recognize from another moment in the story earlier in 102. And we get a chance to kind of get to know the troop a little bit in this stopover and get another visit from our friend, Mr. Montebank. <laughs> I think one thing that viewers are going to be really interested in is the dynamic between Alex and Kirsten, because it's kind of a driving force in this episode, seeing how they kind of play off one another. And they're very, very different beliefs about the world. Right. But similar in a lot of ways, too. They both dedicated their lives to traveling around doing Shakespeare uh, and putting themselves at risk. They're actors. They love the material. They love each other very clearly, I think. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's sisters. Sometimes it's mother-daughter. Sometimes it's rivals. A lot of the dynamics in the show, relationships kind of shift around in year 20 in a way that isn't normal for us, but I think is very normal for them. Oh, totally. And the setting for these very tense dynamics with the Traveling Symphony is, of course, Pink Tree. And 
We also get to meet the old director of the group, Gil, played by David Cross. The director, as opposed to the conductor. This is the other (laughs) founding member. And even those two have a very complicated dynamic with one another, especially since the conductor wasn't exactly super excited about the idea of going back there. But Kirsten kind of does a little manipulation early in the episode. A little fib. A little fib fib. to kind of veer things off course and cause the traveling symphony to split up. And part of that is because of this growing fascination with the prophet and everything that he represents, which is uh, a lot of being up to no good, in my opinion. He's sort of the snake in the garden. I think, though, Kirsten is intrigued in a way as well. I mean, obviously, she stabbed him, and then he didn't die. And so she has, on the one hand, a very real concern that she poked a bear that's coming for her friends, um, and she wants to protect them. But the other thing that's going on, and there hasn't been a bunch of time yet to really get into her fascination with the graphic novel, but how did he know those words? To her, no one should know those words, but a woman named Miranda, she met just for a second, a couple of weeks before Arthur died, and she thinks she has the only copy of the book. So suddenly somebody is quoting stuff to her that no one should be able to quote. Something's being activated about the past, and how this man knows these words is intriguing to her for other reasons, too. Oh, totally. And especially the sense of nothing being stable, which we get to see in this episode, partially through this restructuring of Hamlet with Alex as a lead instead of Kirsten, which gives it a completely different edge. And obviously, alongside all of that, we're getting flashbacks to Jeevan and a young Kirsten in the cabin. And when you experience such trauma like that with another person by your side, you're kind of forever wedded to each other. Like it's a soul bond in a way. I think that too. But then you see Kirsten and Alex arguing uh, a couple of times. And it's sort of like the baggage that you have with someone that you love flaring too Mm. hard too many times in too short a period of time, you know, like, And then suddenly someone's getting on a horse and riding away and (laughs) you didn't have a chance to repair, like fix it now. There's some argument for that because you don't know when you're going to see someone again. And I think they live it in year 20 very much. Oh, totally. As evidenced by where we leave the situation at the end of this episode. Oh, yeah. It ends, oh, with a bang. But not quite because there's a little bit after that. But then, then some grumble, then some Star Trek, then some cool score. And then, yeah, a always a cool score. <laughs> always great to end on a scream because it really is like a gut punch of a decision. This episode leaves the traveling symphony, including Kirsten and Alex, in a very interesting place in life. But we do know Kirsten's alive. Yes. You know, like I think we needed to show that Kirsten's on the hunt for Alex here, that she survived that blast. And when we pick up year 20 again, we're going to keep going on that quest to find Alex and see what happened, what the fallout and the damage is from that explosion. She seems to be someone who has a real intense fear of abandonment. I think the show starts with Kirsten being abandoned. Yeah. And I think we're starting to see a pattern of it happening to her, that she's very good at finding the new place, uh, but it hurts her very bad when the old place gets blown up. 
You know, one thing I really wanted to ask you, Patrick, though, was about crafting the very stark dynamic between pre-pans and post-pans, especially with regards to Alex, who I'm going to admit to listeners, I wanted to jump into my laptop and strangle her, which says something good about the writing, because usually I'm bored (laughs) with, like, TV and film, because most stuff, unfortunately, is mediocre. So to get an intense emotional reaction from me is a good sign from whatever I'm watching. It means I actually give a shit. And I gave a major shit about Alex because I was like, girl, like, yeah, you're not supposed to talk to fucking strangers. The terrifying carnival of trauma! It's the traveling symphony! Just stop it. The traveling symphony raced you. Watch your mouth. I'm going for a ride. No! No! You're You're not not going, going. goddammit! Why not? Because he's still out there! He didn't die when I stabbed him! Yes, I tried to protect you with the bonfire, Alex. That's why he didn't meet up with you. You're welcome! So can you talk a little bit about crafting that dynamic between pre- and post-pans and what you were hoping to communicate about humanity in general? Well, let me just go back to what you just said. You're not supposed to talk to strangers. I grew up in the 80s. I heard that over and over again. That's That was the, the line and generally good advice. But think about our world. Like You have to talk to strangers. Our world is in year 20. Everybody was a stranger. Mm. When you looked up around and you were the one in 1,000 who survived, you were alone until you talked to a stranger. And everybody who's built anything now built it on the back of taking a risk Seeing a person, going to them and saying, hi, will you be with me? Are you going to be safe? You know, that's a risk always to talk to a stranger. And don't talk to strangers is good advice half the time. (laughs) But another thing we have to kind of at least dig into a little bit is the art of it all in this episode and the very intense complications with collaboration, which can be a very beautiful thing, but it can also be kind of harrowing and frustrating and getting on your nerves. But that's kind of the art of connecting to people, you know? Ultimately, I think the Traveling Symphony is the ethos that the show embraces as the best way to live in your 20, but also kind of the best way to live. And people who are in the arts or who have ever made things with other people all know this, that something wonderfully horizontal happens when you're in a group making a thing. It doesn't matter what people's titles are, roles are. You get in a room and look at each other in the eyes and say, what's the best version of this scene? Mm. The best version of the scene is going to come. And sometimes the person who's supposed to know doesn't know. And sometimes the person who doesn't know knows. And we make each other better if we can let down our guard and get rid of our titles and our positions and not use power, but use communication to get there. The process is the process. Like you, you, you're annoying to each other. You do your things. You dig in. You, you do it passive aggressive. You do it aggressive. You, but you repair. There's ways to be shoulder to shoulder, side by side, pissed at each other but still working on the same thing that you both love. And like, that's, what's beautiful to me about the arts is you can, it's like uh, in the last crusade 
when <laughs> Indiana Jones pours that water on the gunshot wound in <laughs> Sean Connery's belly. And like the it, it all just wipes away and he's okay. Somehow when you're making something together with people, you can shoot each other and then pour magic water on it and you're you, you got a scar kind of but you're okay like the love mm. is still there you can heal so much faster in the arts i think i think we made some really interesting points that will get the audience's mind aflame which makes me really excited to talk to helen shaver should we get into that interview let's do it stranger no danger <laughs> i love it Helen Shaver is not only an accomplished actor, but she has directed some of the greatest moments in film and television. She's directed for hit shows like Orphan Black, Vikings, Westworld, Dietland, Made, and Station Eleven. Helen, I am a major fan of your work. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. That's a nice place to start. <laughs> Blushing. Hey, Helen. Yeah. I'm also a major fan of your work. Oh. And and I yours, Patrick, and and I'm even a bigger fan of what we do together. I like what we made. Yeah, we made something good. Let's talk about it. Okay. Go. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to talk about why you couldn't say no. I think that would be a great way for us to start. Like, what was it? What about the creative in the storytelling or whatever about this project? What was it that captured you? For me, it is it, it was the truth of the that everything is now, that in hello is also goodbye, in birth is death, that now is all there is. And the whole is so much greater than the, the parts. So the making something together, which is right at the center of of the story really spoke to me. I also loved the fact that it was so epic, that it is such an odyssey, such a journey, but also so human, so broken, each of these human beings. It is true to my experience in life. Damn. And that thrilled me. My follow-up question to that beautiful answer is, I'm curious about how the actor in you was drawn to this I think you uniquely amongst our directors were a guide for the Traveling Symphony and for Kirsten in her arc. And I think to remind our listeners, you were a very famous actor for many, many years. The truth about my experience as an actor is that I needed to speak my specific truth through the mouthpiece of the characters in the imaginary circumstances of the characters, wearing clothes of the characters, doing the action of the character. But the truth that was being spoken within all of that was my specific truth, right? Now, as I direct, those same things exist that I, I get to be in every character. I, I am the 10-year-old boy and I am the old woman as I explore it from my inner truths. And then I am also the person who gets to choose the frame, uh, which is so powerful, and the movement of the camera and all of that. So with the actors, as I come to work with actors, I come unafraid. Most directors, many directors I know, are, are terrified of actors because they don't understand the process. And they feel held captive by these people who they've got to somehow make them do what they want. I come from a very different space where I I want to create a space where the actor feels safe enough to make a mistake, to fall down on their face and understand that I've got them. 
I've got them. It's okay. Create a space where they can bring themselves. And then once they bring themselves, then I have something to direct. It's like growing a garden, right? You make the space, you plant the thing, you let it happen, and then you prune. Mm, yeah. Well, you're, you're very, very good at making the set feel safe. I, as someone who saw you grow the bubble of safety, mm. it was a very impressive act. And it, it always felt very important that you had spent those decades probably being on not safe sets or in places that didn't feel great. Lots of times. Watching you make it feel great for us so we could make our thing. Okay, yes, I worked in places that were not safe. But when I don't know what to do, I just be the director I would want to have. You know, mm. that's it. Hmm. And mostly that is to hear the other person. And and it doesn't mean I have to agree. It doesn't mean anything. It just means I hear them. Mm. I hold them. I let them be. And then I direct them. And at that point, they are willing to give me themselves, which becomes the most intoxicating, delicious. It's like falling in love, you know, mm. because there is this mutual opening. The way you describe the relationship between directors and actors is just really beautiful as someone who finds that relationship really fascinating. But one thing I wanted to ask you about, though, was Kirsten's relationship to the graphic novel itself, Station Eleven, is very important in this episode. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk to us about her connection to it, because there's a really important montage in the episode where we're seeing more of the graphic novel. Yes, yes. Well, and you see, she was 90% of the time looking at blank pages. Mm. She endowed that book with what she needed. It's like her... Bible, her guide, mm. her way. Because, like, I had an imagination that she and I used to talk about sometime. Okay, so little Kirsten has this year that we don't really see where she's abandoned and by herself about a year after the onset of the pandemic. All she has with her at that point is this graphic novel, which has been given to her by her most beloved father figure, Arthur. And I thought, as we're growing up, we imagine ourselves as a grown-up, right? And so how, when you're by yourself, how do you survive? It's like, sometimes you feel like you, you're missing uh, whatever manual everybody else got for how do you live your life. You know, you <laughs> go, well, shit, yeah. nobody gave me that manual. Well, somehow, I believe for Kirsten, and that's what I would see with Mackenzie when she would so deeply examine and, and find comfort in this book that this was her manual for survival that had been given her. And so she just brought all the tactile and the child seeing, you know, the adult body, but the child rereading, she is inside herself and outside herself at the same mm. time through that book. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a really fascinating commentary also on the ways art changes us and also like moves with us through life. Like there's certain movies that I, I'm like super obsessed with. Like I'm a huge Betty Davis fan and the film now Voyager, I have seen like a di very different moments in my life. And it's really 
I've changed, but also the art has weirdly changed for me too. You know, that relationship for people can be very intimate. That's brilliant, Angelica. (laughs) That is really what it is, isn't it? When you go back to it and you see it for the first time in another way. Exactly. Can you talk about the gas station stuff and orchestrating this massive, (laughs) massive situation? And that's not We haven't even got to Ping Tree yet, but talk about those days navigating those scenes with Mackenzie, with Philippine, with Enrico, who comes in on the bicycle. Like that moment in the show is we're remembering year 20, but we're also learning year 20. Those days were hard because they were right at the end. We had a lot of constraints in terms of budget and amount of people. So there was a bit of sleight of hand going there, trying to make it look like more was happening than was actually happening. But just to begin with Mackenzie and Philippine, Ford is so much about their relationship. Sisters, mother-daughter, someone who knows disillusion, heartbreak, loss, like Kirsten's character, and a post-pan, someone who, who doesn't know anything about when the world ended. Those were complex moments And we really were obligated to do a lot of um, pipe playing in terms of the narrative, to set up the profit, to set up the danger, intuitive danger and Mm -hmm. and searching. Well, and and Kirsten has just tried to kill a person and failed to kill a person and not told anyone about it. It's really tough subtext because your main character is keeping a secret. So she can't talk about it. Right. And then we're having to track, I think, when the poster comes, for example, when she finds the poster and and Philippine, uh, Alex comes back with the poster. That scene is a lot of subtext in there. He asked me what it was like to be the only postman in the troupe. I said I didn't think about it that way, but he said that I should. That postpans were special the first human generation to be rid from trauma and that the survivors were the only liars left that's what the undersea thought it's from station 11 maybe he read it no there's only one copy and I hit it can you talk about what it's like and Mackenzie's brilliant at this holding like nine pieces of information and and playing it on her face. We can see her thinking very well. I always think that about Mackenzie, but can you talk about that? Yeah, that scene was was really interesting. And, and what I, I mean, I actually felt that so much of it was told in the first frame when, um, when Philippine, when Alex runs up and, and you see, but we're focused on Kirsten and there's a, there's a rear view mirror from the truck that puts Alex's face on Kirsten's heart. And oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was about the heart. That was heart. designed, my darling. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was well, choice I felt and it. <laughs> I felt it in my heart. You know, so that you see that these two people are joined like a totem in a way, right? But Kirsten is the head and Alex is, you know, down here, the heart, the heart, the guts, the child, the, the drive of what's going on. And so... The shots are very, very conscious. I'm not like just going, oh, I'm going to direct the actors and you all figure out what (laughs) what we're going to look at. 
no, 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 no. These shots are all very specifically chosen. But no, and some but, let me let me just pause you for a second, Helen, yeah. and say for the people listening, some directors use a lot of storyboards. Some don't do it at all. Every director, I would say, tell me if this is true, likes to prep a lot of prep. But I would say prep is the best. Yeah, people do it different, and I think you're an interesting mixture in my experience mm. um, of improvisational but planning. You know, you're you're an improvisational planner. If that feels fair. In my planning, in my exploration, what I need to find for myself are sort of the mountain peaks, the tent poles, you know, and that's where I start. Because a shot for me, a great shot for me is not just, well, that's a cool shot, but rather something that is evoking the emotional essence what is really the story under the story, right? Mm. Because, and already telling the audience so that they are already in that state ready to receive what is going on. But then within all of that, once I know what the, the essential things are that I need in the scene, then let it be what it is. And from there, feel secure enough to be able to see and learn and adjust. And it's just more. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. I mean, that's part of what I think you're touching on also is still having like the space and freedom to pull from things in the moment to collaborate, which is also really important to this episode and everything with the traveling symphony. We actually have a scene in this episode about process on the putting green during rehearsal. I'm not saying that. You are going to say it. I'm not saying that. I'm the writer. I'm the actor. When I'm sorry, this just doesn't feel like the same play. It's not holding me. It makes sense, you guys. This is actually, it's so powerful when. Helmet's the same. He doesn't see that Ophelia's faking everything. He's obsessed with his own emotions. No, that's Ophelia. Forget it. This is going to work. Come on, let's put it on its feet. There's a lot of, of bickering uh, and in-family kind of like, let's work it out because Wendy's now the writer. Alex is now the star. Kirsten finds herself in a new role. Everything is changing, but everybody's kind of at peace. But can you talk about shooting that scene? What was happening with, in terms of what Angelica said, the collaboration on the grounds, because we're shooting a show about it, but we're doing it in the background. But we're doing the- it. Yeah, no. And that was quite improvisational, really. That was, you know, because it was always like, where are we going to play this scene? And, you know, we can't because of visual effects and different constraints one has. You want to look this direction, not that direction. The clubhouse. And, um, there was no clubhouse there. There was <laughs> we, no clubhouse. We didn't, so it's cost we didn't a lot want to of money to shoot that way and nothing to shoot that way. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Ruth did a great job. That was a fantastic set. How do you get it? This is our production designer, Ruth Ammon. Yeah. How do you have a post-pandemic, 20-year-down-the-road golf course? Answer that question for people, though, because you were there from it not existing to it existing, and you were the director. It mattered tremendously to you uh, because not only does the rehearsal and the after party, but there's a big sequence with a piano and Laurie Petty to contend with out there too. And you you were very, very focused on getting that right. Yes, and well, and then and and the original approach, right? So Ruth, she went out, she's fantastic. She's stubborn, she sticks to it, she 
insists on greatness. And they found a, a sand quarry. And it was still wintertime when we found it. Because right. the first time I went out there, there, it, there was still snow and all kinds of stuff going on. And we're walking around going, okay, and this is where the green's going to be. It's a fucking wasteland. <laughs> it's a wasteland. And then the logistics <laughs> of getting a company into a quarry very complicated. Uh, and well, we had to build roads. I mean, I say we. Ruth had to build roads. It is a very much a we. You were right on in there making this place. Go on, though. That's right. And, you know, turning a, a circular green into a stage in the daytime so you couldn't define it in any ways with, you know, with light and fire and just focus the attention in a smaller way. And I did that to you. I should tell the listeners, like, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of times the, the directors on a TV show find out, oh, I guess we're not doing it at night anymore because <laughs> the showrunner uh, made a choice. You know, if, this is part of the process too. Mm -hmm. I had my reasons, creative and otherwise, and I think you're a very passionate person, but I loved working with you because I always just thought Helen gets it. Like she gets how this whole thing works. And like, we will have a, a fiery debate about, should we do that scene at night or in the day? And you'll bring everything, but it's the process. You, It's not... I don't know. It was safe. <laughs> Honestly, was I think safe. that was exactly, in your safe right? space <laughs> every time we were working together. And you can disagree and you can go back and forth. And, but then but then there's a point where now it's not an idea. Now it's not something we're talking about. Now it is, this is what we're doing. Okay, so then all of that just goes away and this is what we're doing. And you find... Just like life, you know, you find all kinds of gifts in the in the strangest places. Yeah, yeah, man. definitely. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about the sequence leading up to the explosion. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. He's got a bomb. He came back. The movement of that is stunning and how, you know, you're cutting between the piano playing, Kirsten chasing the girl, and then the actual explosion itself. And it builds and it builds. How do you create such tension as a director and like, you know, weave all those different pieces together also, you know, in editing as well, how that shaped it? I'd be curious about too. Really good editors. Uh, <laughs> and, and the Capanella was such a brilliant choice for music because it has that drive and dissonance and jitteriness that makes you have to go. And the added challenge to that was all of the staircase and the upstairs of Ping Tree, the room she was sleeping in and all of that, were not in the same location as the downstairs. Also not not the same place as what was going on outside. And different times. <laughs> right. On my third day of shooting, uh, way back when, when we were in the original interior of Pink Tree, I'd shot the part where they come down the two stairs together mm -hmm. and it goes in and the explosion. So that was already shot. And not knowing where, what I was going to be um, cutting from, because we had never even found the place that we were going to join this with. So that was already shot. And then the next thing that we did was we shot the the interior of the upstairs and all the running around. And in doing that, it was just a matter of very carefully choosing frames that were complete 
and that a lot of action could take place in. And I also really recognized that the spokes of the uh, banister and the keys really refrained with each other and that I could visually really marry those two things in, in an interesting way. And so all of those shots of running around were kept quite concise. So I knew what I had at the bottom. I collected a number of shots that could be arranged in various ways, although I had a pattern, which is basically what we stuck to, of the geography of the house that I was making up. And then we got to the piano playing itself, which, um, you know, Laurie Petty, what a trip. Laurie, she didn't know how to play the piano. And La Capanella is one of the most complex pieces ever. And so she had spent days and days on Zoom with a a teacher and a keyboard in her little apartment in Toronto, learning how to play that thing, which really gave me the liberty to be able to look down, see her actual fingers on it. And then that night when we went to shoot it, the skies opened up and this rain started to come down. And it was like, what are we going to do? And I said, oh, no, this is a godsend. Mm -hmm. We shoot it in the rain because this is this moment where this woman is reborn, where after years of being stuck by the trauma of the pandemic, unable to play this piece that she was once a genius at, she is cracked open now and available to her again is her incredible talent. So then it was collecting all those things and then putting it together editorially, which, yeah, I was really excited and pleased. And I think of the Godfather and the great, uh, you know, people getting baptized and people getting shot. You know, like it's a, it's a really classic, wonderful situation that Patrick gave me there to play with. Well, I didn't make it rain. <laughs> That's Did not you? in your power as a showrunner. <laughs> I thought y'all could do that. The rain makes it. It doesn't look real like that when we do it. <laughs> Man, it came. We, we, you know, I had all these old people who were my background and a whole bunch of them weren't coming out of the tent. That's why there's not big wide shots because I had like about <laughs> half a dozen of them left. It was an interesting uh, occasion. My final question for you kind of goes back to something we've been talking about a lot in this conversation, the nature of art and collaboration, but how did you as a director help create this dynamic within the traveling symphony? Because it's so important to the show that these people actually feel like family. And yet these actors didn't have all this rehearsal time and the usual like chill out time you guys were talking about. And I'm just curious from your perspective, how do you engender that dynamic on screen as a director? It's sort of like knitting a sweater or something. You do it one person at a time and you do it with an awareness of the whole. And I do it with love. I think love is the most irresistible thing because like if I am willing to be present Mm. And all I really want from my actor is that they are willing to be present and let me see them. And I come and I get close to you, literally physically close to you. And I maybe put my hand on your shoulder or something and I let you see me. You're going to pop into yourself because that's where you, where you want to be. You're just scared. And then if I say roll camera right then, I got you. (laughs) <laughs> you, you know, it's and and so in terms of building the symphony, I just did that with each individual. I I would call them on the phone. I would just like build a whole relationship with them long before you get to the set. I remember I, I, a really good director, a friend of mine who's been a mentor in many ways, called me a few years ago and said, 
Helen, I got a question to ask you. And I said, well, yeah, what's that? He said, what do you do if you're doing a love scene or a sex scene or whatever it was, a scene with some nudity is, is what he was talking about. And the actor, the female, comes on and, and says, okay, how many shots you got for this? I don't want to do it anyway. And like, what? And I go, well, I would never be having that conversation on the set on the day I was shooting it. Mm. This is all stuff that needs to get taken care of long before you come to the set, as far as I'm concerned. Otherwise, you're, you're like putting people out there in the middle of this public place and without them being safe, you know, without it being okay. Mm. So anyway, I don't know. Uh, I think you do know. If that's anything we've learned from this conversation <laughs> is that Helen Shaver knows what the fuck she's doing. I don't know. <laughs> yes, you have figured does. shit out. Like the whole being present thing is like, I think one of the hardest things to to do as a human being is to be present and also be vulnerable. But seriously, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and being so open about your experience on the show and just in life. This was really beautiful. Thank you so much. And in all of that, as Ibsen said, there's a truth shared by women, children, and artists that men will never know. Patrick is an artist. He knows the truth. And one of the truths in there is that kindness and care should not be mistaken as weakness. Yes. Here's the here's yes. the only truth I know, Helen. You're the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Patrick. I love you too. Aww, that is so sweet. I, I really this was a great conversation. Thank you again. And of course, you know, stay safe out there in this very strange world we are living in right now. Thanks. I just want to say thanks again to Helen Shaver for coming on the show. I was really blown away by the beauty and care she puts into her work and the way she really talked about the relationship between a director and an actor as someone who's been on both sides of the camera. Yeah, and I've, I've worked with directors who are actors before, but none with that prolific a career coming into the shoot that we were doing and, and her wisdom that she acquired, I think, in that part of her life turned out to be incredibly important to making our show. Definitely. I think that's a great note to end this episode on. Thanks to everyone who's listening and coming along with us on this journey through the world of Station Eleven. Join us next week when we speak with Station Eleven's production designer, Ruth Ammon, as we dig into Episode 5, The Severn City Airport. Station Eleven, the podcast, is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio and hosted by me, Patrick Somerville, and Angelica Jade Bastien. Our executive producer is Molly Sosha, with special thanks to Ethan Fixell. Our engineer extraordinaire is James Foster. This episode was written and researched by Kate Voss. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to rate and review Station Eleven, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you happen to listen. And don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast for free so you don't miss an episode. You can catch up on the latest episodes of Station Eleven on HBO Max. 